This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Wall-E, currently streaming on Disney+. And we warmly welcome back our first non-familial returning guest, owner of All About Authenticity and professional speaker, our friend, Roger Walkoff. Roger, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me back, Thomas and Dana. Happy to be here. So this is one that you had identified as one of your favorites. Uh, I've been wanting to kind of get into animation with the show for a while, and Pixar is always a great one for how to expand our universe, because I think there is maybe not a more successful company whenever they release a movie than Pixar. It seems like just about every one that they release is a is a home run. But why Wally? Well, a couple of reasons. One, I love, like you said, you, you can't go too wrong with many of the Pixar ones. I loved Wally. It came out in 20, uh, 2008, and um, my kids were 13 and 10. So oh, it was good. just another in the series of Pixar movies that we were adding to our collection. Um, I liked it. It's It's got, you know, robots. It's got space involved. It's got a fun little love story. And it's got, you know, so many other stories going on. Uh, that it just it's one of those ones that warms my heart it's a feel-good movie for me and that's why i liked it so when i when i look at the list of pixar movies this one's at or near the top absolutely i mean i'm old enough that i've pretty much grown up on pixar Uh, i was five years old when toy story came out which was their first one uh, and then they got bought up by disney and that partnership has just flourished over the years but i kind of have to admit this is the first time I've actually seen this movie and I did end up watching it twice uh, for this uh, particular thing and I I think that was actually beneficial because there were so many small bits that I picked out of it that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten but simple fact being that I think when you're younger animation is an easy go-to like you know as a kid you watch all these movies and have these relationships with certain ones but as you kind of get older there's this it's essentially a stigma that you just, oh, those are for kids. And I think that the animation game, and one reason why I really wanted to open up this space in the show, is that I think, particularly when it comes to Pixar, they've gotten a a right flair, or they've hit the right note when it comes to uh, being able to make these movies that approach what the essence of humanity is. I agree. I agree. And as you were talking, it just reminds me, these aren't these aren't just movies for kids. Uh, This animation, uh, there's so many adult messages in there, as well as the fact that uh, the reason they're feel good movies to me is they they take me back to my days of cartoons. And as I rewatched Wally for for our show, uh, one of the things that appealed to me that we can talk about later uh, is it reminds me, uh, Dana, I don't know if this is where you might recall, but uh, all the uh, the uh, Looney Tunes. Uh, cartoons that came in there. There was so much of, of that slapstick, uh, one punchline bit bits that 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 are in this movie that I remember as I was rewatching. I'm like, oh man, that's funny. Oh, this reminds me of uh, the Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and Elmer Fudd thing that was going on. You could you could, it, it kind of had tones of that. So I hear you when you say that they're somewhat universal themes that uh, Pixar picks up on. 
Yeah, at least the Looney Tunes from the later days when Chuck Jones kind of produced and directed most of the Looney Tunes, Agreed. they got very much more adult from about the, oh, probably late, late 40s, like 49 through until about 1960 when they kind of phased them out until they started doing Saturday mornings. I'm sorry, you don't find the uh, war propaganda versions to be adult-level content? <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. So, Dad, since I didn't watch this one as a kid, I mean, this came out when I was graduating high school. I'm assuming you didn't have a relationship to this movie either? No. No, I'm I'm at uh, about that time frame, um, I was... Uh, you guys were all grown and gone, and most of my time was spent in my office um, working. I kind of took more time at home when I was younger when you guys were smaller, and then when you didn't need me, I focused more on business and um, making sure there was enough cash for you to go to school. One of the things that struck me about this as well, and I, I've seen this a lot in other Pixar movies, but this one had... Um, more specific cases that I could easily point to is that you see, especially in the second viewing, you could see the craftsmanship of Pixar. Right. And one of the, the aspects that I really love and appreciate how they do their movies by comparison to most others is they are clear lovers of movies. They right. do so many just little touches or homages. And I don't know if either of you picked these out, but I thought there were obvious homages to 2001 A Space Odyssey. I don't think anybody that's seen either film can really distinctly um, separate the two when it comes to certain aspects. Playing right. Strauss when he's first starting to walk uh, towards the end of the movie or, you know, Otto is basically HAL 9000 in a yes. more modern Pixar sense. But I also thought, and I don't know if anybody else got this, but... If you go back and watch something like City Lights by Chaplin, there's a lot of Chaplin in Wall-E and how the character interacts. And I just thought some of the subtleties of how that was played up for the comedic effect, you can definitely see that level of craftsmanship that I didn't even get on the first viewing, but seemed quite evident to me on the second. And I wasn't aware of it until I I started to look at more reviews of Wally, and I, I didn't I didn't capture the City Lights comparison, and now <laughs> it's got me intrigued uh, that I want to go back and look and see how much of the character of Wally was based on that. Well, I don't know if they directly did, but I just see there's like a similarity, and maybe even it's a subconscious level because I know they sync very fine points into all of these movies. Now, I'll point out both of those are currently available on HBO Max if anybody wants to go view them. <laughs> Done. Well, I, I actually rewatched the first half an hour of the film without sound on purpose because it was virtually a silent film to begin with. It was more visual of what was taking place and the facial expressions of Wally and uh, all of that. And so I wanted to just see it from a visual standpoint and not have the sound at all to influence me. And I noticed how much emotion was conveyed just through facial expressions on the robot. They do a very good job of conveying a lot of emotion through just the eyes and yes. being able to make us connect with the robots. Not an easy feat. 
just from a look standpoint. It isn't. And that's one of the things that struck me, I think, the most after you realize what they're doing to you emotionally, you know, in the film, that all of a sudden you've drawn in and you you have an opinion, you have a like, you have an affinity. At least I did for the Wally Cack character again, I, you know, even seeing it after all this time. It reminded me of, oh my God, I can't believe I'm drawn into this character, right? We're anthropomorphizing a a couple of objects, <laughs> right. uh, you know, and, and then, you know, you get even, even when the stark cold Eve character uh, comes in, there's a moment where you're supposed to switch. And we do that. We like her, it, <laughs> whatever it is. Uh, and again, evoking emotion through drawing and, 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 because like you said, Dan, even, even before those characters speak, there's so much going on. So there are a couple of very small pieces, even with her. If you watch during the course of the movie, her eyes uh, change from just very solid cylindrical dots yeah. to having different curvatures to them to convey different levels of emotion where it seems much more robotic and that it's just a programmable thing to that it develops personality over time. Right. And it goes from harsh to soft, like when she first laughs. Correct. Uh, you get the programmable chuckle, and all of a sudden, I know it does it for me. You see that soft half moon crescent look in the eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a softer look. Oh, what am I supposed to feel here? Well, you don't have to worry about it. Your brain is taking over for you uh, and conveying what's going on between the two characters. And it's one of the reasons, and again, I, I go back to our wanting to open up to animation, I think there is something to be said for having to appeal to the basest emotions, that they're doing a more complex job, but making it a much more deliverable um, emotional state. And the purity of how they have to develop these, uh, because, I mean, if you look at the behind-the-scenes type stuff for any of these Pixar movies, they go through, like, 30 drafts of a script. Like, Up went through redevelopment I don't know how many times. Uh, I would assume this one did as well, where they're taking very small bits, and then they have to rework it to fit it back all together. So they'll take all the acts, and the acts will act independently, and then they'll figure out how to weave that together. And uh, honestly, I can't fathom to a certain degree how they do that as well as they do. One connection I make uh, is that I remember seeing something that's been published out there, and I have the the, the poster uh, that I haven't framed yet. But if you look at it, it they, they, they tell the hero's journey story so well. You can go back, and it, it's not – I was going to say it's somewhat formulaic, but they don't make you feel like it's formulaic. Quite the comparison. I'm glad you brought that up, that you watched it without, uh, without sound to, to get a sense for what was going on. All right, Dad, so let's jump into kind of our uh, basic overview of the movie. Do you have your plot summary written up? Robot lives an isolated existence doing the same thing day after day, is eventually had his life altered by the arrival of another person or another robot, falls in love and makes an that becomes an epiphany and changes the course and direction of his life from that point forward. 
All right, this movie is was recognized as one of the top ten best movies by the AFI in 2008. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay for Pete Docter, Original Score for Thomas Newman of the Newman Family. Yes, that Newman Family. Original Song, Sound Editing, and Sound Mixing. It did win for Best Animated Feature that year. All right, so, gentlemen, what is this movie about? Roger, we'll start with you. Yeah, you know... It's interesting. I, I thought there were three things it was about. Two robots meet, quote unquote, fall in love <laughs> on an AI level, or at least we're led to believe they do. Uh, and, you know, it's the boy meets girl, girl meets boy story. That's one of them. It's uh, it's also it's, so it's about how, you know, the discovery of relationships. The second part is a, a look at the world, you know, and what the heck humanity did to it. Uh, we basically tra- trashed the planet somehow, right? Consumption, capitalism, whatever the heck it was, we trashed the planet to the point where we made it unlivable and uh, needed to get away from the planet, you know, because it just wasn't going to sustain life. Uh, and then there's a third kind of uh, story that that really got to me when I remember first watching it, and that is how humanity let itself go <laughs> in this uh, in this confined spaceship. And, and when I say let go, right, you know. Uh, uh, technology uh, takes over their lives. And this is in 08. Remember mm-hmm. that, right? And, and humanity has video screens, video chat. They have their food served to them in a cup. You know, they don't have to do anything. And we see people, you know, just fat and happy. You know, nobody walks. They all ride around on hover chairs. Uh, so that's kind of a third component of the film going on. Even robotic beings can find love. <laughs> I like wow, that. Wow, is that reductionist? <laughs> I thought of that I'm immediately. Just you. I, mm-hmm. Members of my family are not necessarily excluded. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's hard not to take that one personally there, Pop. It wasn't necessarily re- uh, referring to you, but... Uh, Oh, but it was. <laughs> oh, guys. <laughs> uh, the uh, other thing all right. is, it's, that I noted was is the the third point Roger made, which is it's just the complete willingness of man to just stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's just let's just do everything conveniently, as uh, everybody now has uber eats or doordash bringing them their food now instead of even bothering to get up and put on pants and go outside you know and i and i and i started to see this even pre-pandemic right i remember walking like we didn't have to interact with humanity and the the awareness i had for that dana was like i walked into uh panera one day and i saw that they had a big cube uh, cubicle of shelves where you know people could just pick up their food that they had ordered on their phones Right. And then it wasn't long before that model started taking place. So I could even go to the restaurant, not interact with a soul and still pick up what I needed. And it just, you know, it rem- well, well, who are we breaking bread with now these days? You know, it, it just takes that whole concept away. And that was, again, pre-pandemic. Every one of my f- meals right now is consumed in front of a screen. And out of necessity. So now I think it's a necessity and God willing that will change and we will have the option and the choices uh, to do that and, you know, to, to meet and eat and do things in person. 
But I think even to a certain ex- extent, and that's why it it reflects somewhat on me that I did that voluntarily a bit beforehand. But I think part of the unknown blessings of the mm-hmm. pandemic is I've told everybody that is in my regular circle, expect a hug when I can do so. You you just take those small subtleties for granted and. I think that a lot of us appreciate things a lot more when all of it is taken away. I agree. And, and there are a couple of points in, in, in this animated film that, that do that. It's really interesting. Like when the folks, a couple of people get knocked out of their hover chairs and their screens are taken away. Yeah. Uh, and the, there are some funny moments. But, you know, there's a there's a heartwarming moment where John Ratzenberger's character and the, 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 the female character are sitting watching the stars. They had no idea, you know, that there were stars. And then they... <laughs> you know, their hands touch, you know, Mm -hmm. it might've been the first time, you know, two people have touched in God knows how long, uh, that that's what that society went to. Right. One of my nominees, I didn't know we had a pool. Love that. Isn't that funny? You know, and that's the thing, right. You know, so what, there are things going on around us that we don't recognize. Yeah. That is one of the funniest. Exactly. So it's, it's interesting out of this, we, we, we did screens as necessity pre-pandemic and post-pandemic uh, or in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, you know, out of necessity, we have convenience foods delivered to us. Yeah, you know, there are things that we can do without interacting with another human soul. But how good is it for us? So I'm going to introduce what either is an add-on to this category or might be its own category itself. The elevator pitch. Now, when this movie was crafted, and so this is where this came out of, I noticed that part of the idea for this movie came from a luncheon that apparently Peak Doctor, Andrew Stanton, and uh, John Lasseter had while they were finishing Toy Story. And they actually came up with, I think, five ideas that eventually did become films during this supposed luncheon. But one of them was this. And the original concept for this is... Robinson Caruso with a robot. Mm. And so if you were to sell an elevator pitch, it's that. Now, as far as what the movie's about, I I did a little bit of expansiveness, but I think it kind of gets into a couple of areas that you guys have worked around but didn't necessarily uh, mention. So meta-commentary on environmentalism, I think that's a huge point of this movie, a huge theme. And I see that in almost every one of the reviews that I read from uh, the contemporary time. Man's relationship with AI, I think that's a huge part of this. And then our ability to survive as a species. I think all three of those are front and center in this movie. I agree. But it's interesting what happens when a group of creatives gets together. Uh, If you you watch, I started to go back and watch some of the things that are going on on the uh, Disney Channel. Uh, now and uh, I'm consuming anything in the Pixar category and it's really neat to watch I, I, I love watching the Pixar shorts I love watching anything where they've where you hear that they the uh, executive team just turned their creative people loose and see what they produce just to see if anything what made it into another Pixar film or what might be coming down uh, the pike in the future it's just fun to watch where people's minds go Well, and I think there's something to be said for surrounding yourself with creative people. Just in general, I think, uh, what was it? It's uh, Andrew Carnegie or Carnegie, the uh, 
concept of the people you spend the most time with, or is that somebody else, Dad? It was uh, Napoleon Hill who uh, was hired by Carnegie to study success, and then Hill taught it to Jim Rome, who taught oh, it yes. to okay. Jim Rohn. Yeah. Yep. Jim Rohn says you are the to Tony, uh, Tony Robbins. Robbins. Tony Robbins. Yeah. And, yeah. But yeah, I, yeah, I, I think there's something much more of an expansive idea. And it's something I've tried to implement around myself, the people I spend the most time with, you know, we constantly talk about the toxicity among people in our lives and trying to cut that out. But then we very rarely rope in the other thing. When you find valuable people worth spending time on that bring the best out of you, you want to keep those people around as much as possible. And that's something I do. I offer, uh, I have one of my programs as a speaker. I said, it's called find your five because I based it off of, Jim Rohn's quote, which was, oh, you know, gosh. you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so I look at that quote and I'm like, well, dang, I better make some good choices, right? Because like you said, you can either, you know, be active about it or be passive about it. So if I'm active and if I see some qualities that I like, and I teach this, if I see qualities that I like in another person and I want more of that, I'm going to try to spend more time with that person if they're willing to, whether it's by overt conversation or just observing how they do something. So there definitely something to be said for that. Best performance. Uh, let's start with you, Pop. Well, I'm just going to give it because he's been in every Pixar film, and I love him, his voice, and everything about him, John Ratzenberger. <laughs> There's a Cheers fan at heart. Yes, it is. Every Pixar film. And he is he has a like an open-ended contract with Pixar that he gets to be in everything uh, until he's no longer able to. I love that. I love, I love trying to figure out where and I listen for it in every movie, you know, where's your, where's Ratzenberger? Where's, where's his voice? <laughs> Which character is he? Yeah, that's a great trivia question. Roger, who did you have down? I went behind the scenes. I gave it to Stanton doctor and reardon the three uh the screenplay and the uh the the writers um i could pick i could pick my characters you know i love it i love there are certain characters in the movie but for this one it it just goes back to humanity the folks and the creative like just to touch back to what you said having the the mind to create this stuff fantastic so hats off to them especially in a modern sense um after we had soul recently and uh even onward coco those types of movies that pete doctor has really become the integral part behind the story making of pixar and uh he'll be coming up here in a second for me so i had down thomas newman and i think there is a trivia question what is the highest uh academy awarded family in oscar history it's the newmans Uh, So when you talk about Randy, when you talk about Thomas Newman's dad, who was also a composer, they have 93 combined awards for the Newman family. I had no idea. But going back to what you said, Dad, I think that because a certain portion of this movie is silent, that a lot is created and evoked through the musical score. And the fact that he was able to blend it so well with all of the other small bits of this, Andrew Stanton being in uh, Hello Dolly when he was in like high school or something, middle school, something like that. But then to be able to blend those pieces together and make it work so that you had certain musical cues within the score that blended that portion of the, the musical itself 
into that because that was clearly meaningful to Wally. Obviously, it sets up the the last scene, the shock, if you will. And that's not something very simple. It has to be very subtle. And I think he did an extremely good job of being able to blend those. I look back at a few of the movies that he did the last few years. I think actually I voted for him uh, or would have voted for him. I obviously don't have an Academy vote, but I would have voted for him last year for his score for Marriage Story as the best original score last year as well. So I, I think this is a guy that we very rarely have nominated composers on this show. But in this one instance, I clearly noticed the score and it enhanced my viewership as we went along. So best secondary performer, and I mentioned it would be coming up in a minute, but it's Pete Doctor for all the reasons I mentioned before. I think he's got such a keen ability to tell stories in a way that he gets what I like to refer to as the essence of humanity. He clearly took away a lot from his college philosophy classes because there are certain pieces that he just seems to be able to get but doesn't have to overemphasize. He does it elegantly through simplicity. Inside Out is a great example of that. The recent soul that everybody loved is a great example of that. Just the little parts of what make up what we are, the essence of who we are, and the small pieces that how we interact, what makes personality, just the evoking of the eyes in Wally or Eve, as we mentioned before, just those small little pieces and being able to blend those all together into a complete narrative that, yes, there are very three very distinct acts to this movie, but they carry through so well and transition so beautifully that it really doesn't seem like it's three different acts, but one movie. Good point. So, Dad, who did you have as your best secondary performer? I have to set this up just a wee bit, which is when you're talking about um, an animated film especially, there's certain feelings or emotions that almost become an independent character. And so my secondary performance in this was optimism. At the Mm. very end, when they're going to go back to Earth and they're fighting for this idea that they can have the plant and can go back to Earth and start anew and things will go well, it just kind of, the character was the optimism that humans ultimately have that things will work out. Hmm. Thanks for bringing that one up. Yeah, that's that's a completely different view on the category that I would have never expected. That's a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I, I just think when you're well, talking I, about animated films, you have the ability to convey it uh, more readily than with actors and with humans because you're focused so on the humans that sometimes I think you miss the emotional aspect and the story and what's going on among the characters. And they tend to blend in and you can pick out things a little easier. Just my uh, thought or feelings on that. Personally, I'd be very optimistic about growing a pizza plant myself as well. (laughs) (laughs) Roger, who would you have done? I'm going to go a different road. I'm going to go with the animators that, Again, I was uh, for the time that this was done. You know, we're look, t- looking at now almost you know twelve, thirteen years ago. Part of the reason why I fell in love with Pixar 
was because of their ability to deliver on creating that emotion through digital animation, drawings, whatever the heck they were doing. Uh, I was just awestruck by how they did it and uh, the popularity with which these things, which, which with, with, with which these movies were picked up and the conversations that, that they, they started not only with me, but uh, you know, that I would start, but other people, you know, at the time, you know, uh, seeing them. So I hats off to the animators for me for a secondary performance. And I, again, I'll agree with you in one very distinct thing, the way this movie looks and being able to bring such of all these concepts together, mm-hmm. but blending them through visual is not, again, an easy thing to do, but they make it look very easy. They do. And, and the way that they do that, we, we alluded to it you know, a little earlier. It's, it, it, we were talking about the eyes of the, uh, of the robots, uh, yeah, particularly Eve and Wally. And later on, other robots that we see were meant to feel certain ways about the way these all these robots function in this AI society, and the way that they're drawn, the way that they, uh, the way that the animators executed the movements of the robots, the way we look at their eyes, their quote-unquote facial expressions, all that stuff just fascinates the heck out of me. Yeah, it's it's an amazing feat every time they put out a new one, and it seems to be getting better and better. Just yes. the crispness and the quality that's on there. And yet, I wouldn't say that this feels that different or that it the animation feels too outdated. It's just we've gotten that much better. We have. All right. Best scenes, gentlemen. Dad, do you want to go first? I, I really enjoy the opening and it, leading into the background with Fred Willard. I always enjoy watching <laughs> Fred Willard in anything. And... Uh, I mean, I every time I see him, my mind goes back to those days when you kids were small and your mother and I would watch late at night after you were in bed, Fernwood Tonight with Martin Mull and Fred Willard, a uh, fake talk, local talk show. It was just hilarious. I just thought he was just absolutely priceless. And so when I'm seeing him and he's explaining it, it just really stuck a chord with me. You know, and it's funny you mentioned that I skipped over most charismatic. And the only reason I remembered that was I was very, very, very close to nominating Fred Willard. Yeah, I, I wondered about that. I I had my most charismatic, but uh, I thought maybe for some reason you decided to cut it out and whatever. No, I just simply missed it. You know, I have my uh, faults as well. So I'll, I'll go quickly go through mine. And because... Yes, there's a vote or a voice and some noises or sounds that are evoked. You might be able to give it to the, I guess, a voice actor, if you will, behind it. But I, I, it's hard for me to say how much of a performance he gave in that. So I'm just going to give it to the character. I think Wally's the most charismatic, and I think that's on purpose. I, I think there's a really identifiable or identifiable reason that. Somehow this little robot that has very small things about it, a tape recorder for whatever reason, but that somehow seems to work, or the treads on his on his feet or whatever you want to call it, uh, his small little arms, all of these things have their own moment in the movie in some capacity. And then back to his eyes yet again, and it just draws you in. There's like... A deepness and a 
almost sadness in the loneliness that he's got, especially at the early portion of the film that he's engaging and just kind of makes him lovable, even though it's this creature that should have almost no personality. So it, it it's honestly one of the uh, best parts about the movie. So, Dad, what did you have down then? For Charismatic, I had Jeff Garland. Simply because his voice is so unique and so, I mean, you're drawn into whatever character he's voicing. And he just has a knack. There's certain voices that just automatically you have a memory associated with them. Um, I never thought about it until after I watched this film again, and then I could remember every other uh, animated film that he had been in. I mean, it's not to the level of Morgan Freeman or James Earl Jones or somebody like that, but uh, he's got a pretty distinct voice that has a a real ability to draw you into the character he's uh, voicing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Roger, where did you go on that one? I agreed with you. Wally uh, was my first one uh, that I picked. His, uh, he's goofy. He, I love what you said. He's, you said he's lovable. You know, it's the, he's got this slapstick kind of thing going on. And, uh, you know, you, you look at it and you're like, this robot, you know, it's got a big heart. He, he wants to find love. He doesn't want to be alone. Really? I'm meant to feel this way about a robot? And it kind of makes you feel, and in today's terms, it's kind of like, I wonder if, you know, we would have seen more Wally or more episodes of Wally if he would have, you know, could have had the potential to be like the baby Yoda craze, you oh, know, sure. where, you know, the, the country now, you know, is, you know, or anybody who's watched the Mandalorian is like, Oh, baby Yoda. So cute. And even though baby Yoda does some horrific things as expressed in social media, uh, you know, everybody still want, you know, it has this affinity for this inanimate character, <laughs> you know, uh, so that's why I, I thought Wally was the most charismatic. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I think this movie comes out at really a dividing line time, the, the summer of 2008, that you could say that there are a lot of things that are very different after that year from the Academy Awards, uh, which we'll, we're going to expand to, to the social media, to just the general culture of Americans at large, that... Uh, we're just on the precipice of Twitter and all of that exploding, and it hadn't quite happened yet. I wonder, to a certain degree, if this would have had a different life online. All right, back to best scene. So we'll pick that up. Roger, do you have your best scene or uh, a nominee? My first one was uh, Wally meets Eve. It's a it's a moment that the the, the funniest one. Uh, is after she first lands and he makes a noise and she uses her <laughs> laser rifle to blow the daylights out of, you know, uh, a rock and it's just molten and hot and you see just Wally cowering in the smallest place he can, yet he's he's just drawn to her. He he just he's like a little puppy or a little kid who just won't won't give up, you know. But that when he first meets her, that's one of my favorites. You know, I wondered also, and maybe this is a remaining question, but I didn't put it down as one of my remaining questions. The only way that Wally ends up kind of being introduced is through the, I guess, would you call it a bug or an insect? 
And that by itself is life, but Eve doesn't pause until she sees the plant. So right. that's kind of an open-ended question. All right. Everybody expects cockroaches to survive. Right. <laughs> so many possible jokes, Dad. You're just tossing that one in the air. <laughs> yes, I am. All right. Uh, so I'm going to go with uh, Wally showing Eve Hello, Dolly, because I think it sets up the emotional climax of the movie in a lot of different ways where uh, she gets an appreciation. It's not that it dawns on her until much later in the film, but all the pieces that he's trying to evoke through that, particularly the hand-holding uh, portion of it that obviously sets up in the conclusion. But I, I just think it's a very wonderful scene. You get them kind of showing each other, you know, what the what are they doing? He kind of does that weird top hat thing with the, like, trash can lid, and uh, then she tries to hop around and is basically going to break his home. And it, just all the subtleties to all the movement that goes around that one, it's a near... Uh, soundless portion of the movie, but I think it ends up setting up a lot of the emotional portions of, of how that uh, their relationship is supposed to work going forward. Obviously concluded by the fact that she finds the plant and then he wants to take care of her. All right. Let's, uh, Dad, what's your next nominee? The foreign contaminant. <laughs> well, Really, when I'm watching that, I, I was laughing about just the sheer stupidity or the idiocy of this. And it dawned on me, this is when people are exposed to a different culture for the first time. And it, it just uh, that was what it was. And mm -hmm. it took me back to the first time I was in Germany with your mother in 1994. And I made so many faux pas that I never thought in a million years were faux pas because... For instance, you bring out a whole thing of meat and cheese and, and bread, and you that's you eat each thing individually. I made a sandwich, and my uh, host or Chris's host mom was just absolutely appalled. Oh! Or going into a restaurant, they hand you a bottle of Diet Coke, and you drink it out of the bottle instead of pouring it in the glass. You just don't do that in Germany. And so... That's really what that scene was more or less about. It's somebody coming from a completely different culture and just kind of leaving a, a wide swath of destruction in its wake. You know, Dad, you've said for years that uh, you regret that nobody's been able to give you a great nickname. But I say this endearingly. You could be my foreign contaminant. Ah, yes. You guys going to make T-shirts? Well, we should. Uh, all right, Roger, did you have another nominee? Uh, yeah, uh, the directive exchange. Uh, oh, sure. Uh, where Wally, uh, where she, where Eve finally gets the directive that uh, directive, and she holds out her robot hands to hold Wally's hand, and Wally then flips and says, no, 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 your original directive is what you need to do to save Earth. He sees the bigger picture and makes the sacrifice. And he says, no, he points to the plant directive, get the plant in whatever is going to take him back to Earth. So kind of a pivotal moment, kind of a heart, kind of a uh, tug at your heartstrings moment for me. 
All right. On my list, I think this is probably one of the best sequences of the movie, but I'm going to go with the chase sequence. That whole about 10 to 15 minutes where you you basically have uh, the captain and Wally and uh, Evil having to work together to defeat Otto. And again, that's A-U-T-O Otto, not O-T-T-O. I didn't know that until I looked it up after the film, so... So the, the, the chase sequence and all the, the small portions of that and how kind of oddly thrilling it is for them to be able to do that, I think enhanced yet again by Thomas Newman's score, uh, being able to kind of raise the energy level where realistically it seems like you could reduce it. Okay, they just need to put the plant inside the Lido Dex, um, I guess, identifier or whatever else to take them back to Earth. And it's such a MacGuffin-y type thing, but the things they have to do to get to that point are much bigger. And, you know, the ship tilting and Jeff Garland having to figure out how to walk again and all of those little small pieces and everything builds on itself until you get that final moment. You know, Wally's trying to basically uh, hold up the, the, I don't know, what do you, what would you call it? The examiner thing? and basically has to sacrifice himself for the conclusion of the movie. And so I, I just thought that was a really great sequence. It's the one where it really held my attention probably the most of any of the pieces in this movie. All right, Roger, you got another nominee? Yeah, uh, I've got two more. Uh, the first, uh, we'll go around. But the, the one that I enjoyed the most, you know, I, I love the Eve saves Wally uh, when they make it back to Earth. Uh, yeah. The, rush back to the to Wally's home and uh, you know her searching at super speed to find you know all the parts to make Wally whole again to save his life uh, and that that whole end scene where he does come back to life and what it takes to really bring his identity his true identity back to her loved that yeah all the small personality touches that she's trying to remind him of and right you, it it kind of is that emotional thing as kids because it's again it's a subtle emotional cue that oh he's no longer there but then he comes back and so it's happy and all of those things but Mm -hmm. it it really works where you're like oh no it can't end with wally not being able to be wally anymore right it was almost james garner in the notebook Mm. that's not a bad comparison yeah yeah right we and we have this moment like is he gonna get it you know is it are we gonna see him is he gonna come back to us Good comparison. Resuscitating the hero, yeah. Dad, do you have another nominee yet? Well, I had the earlier one where Eve saves Wally, which is when he's in the uh, shuttle pod and she's trying to get him back and stuff. Because up until then, I just had this kind of apprehension. You know, it's going back to How I Met Your Mother, the settler versus the reacher. And I always I felt like Wally was the reacher and Eve was the settler. And that she really didn't care about Wally nearly as much as Wally cared about her. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was until that scene that I felt that she really had a connection and really expressed feelings towards Wally that were visible and visceral. Well said. I, I honestly didn't take that out of that at all. But now that you, you kind of point that out, it, it's hard not to see it. Roger, you said you had one more yet? Yeah, it's not going to make my list for you know the favorite or uh, but but uh, for or best. But uh, 
I got to give a nod to the, uh, the the robots in the repair ward um, <laughs> and, and the escape scene. And I laughed every time. I, there were so many times that, you know, once I once I, you know, you're able to pause and stop and, and just watch all the different fun ones. Like we've seen all the robots throughout the movie and what they do. And yet, you know, then you see how they're misfits, kind of like the misfits on uh, the island in uh, Rudolph, uh, the red-nosed reindeer, the misfit robot, and, and how they all band together and how they use each of their unique talents throughout the movie or their, their unique gifts, their, their, what makes them misfits or, or not the right robot, how they use each of those gifts uh, to uh, further along the story and do something positive. Just yeah, that I, I, laugh, I laugh every time at the initial, you know, funniness of it and then you know just how creative the writers were in letting each one of them (laughs) have a a role in the hero's journey i just laugh every time when i watch them well after he shuts down auto i think there are at least three if not four robots involved in trying to get the uh, plant boot into the examiner you're right Uh, there's the uh, foreign contaminant cleaning bot there's the vacuum robot that like shoots it across the room. Then there's the umbrella one that right. shoots it over to Eve, that type of thing. So yep. yeah, all of those working in sequence. Um, understandable. Did either of you get the symbolism? The plant is in a boot. We're going to reboot earth. Oh no, I completely missed that. Oh man. No, nope, missed that one. Jeez. <laughs> oh, and it's, it's, it's glaringly obvious, Dana. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's great. I love coming on this show with you guys just for those. I mean, you did that to me with the last one. You know, did you see this? No. <laughs> oh, what a great one. Thanks for bringing that one up. That's, That's like good. the third time today, Dad. You're on your game. Love that. So uh, favorite scene for everybody? Uh, I don't have any nominees left. Did anybody? I suppose I should have asked that. Does anybody have any nominees left? No. All right. So favorite scenes for me. I'm going to go with the chase sequence. I already mentioned that as as why I, I just that one to me and that whole really the almost the entire third act like once you get to about the the point where they rediscover the plant and they get into the fight with Otto and uh, all of that stuff I, I think that last half hour just give me purely the chase sequence I think that's probably my favorite uh, Roger what did you have down for your favorite yeah my favorite I'm gonna go with the uh Eve saves Wally uh, at the end, at, at the very end, uh, when she puts him back together. And then uh, she, we, we think it's all hopeless that he's, we're not going to see his personality. Uh, and then the connection back to the spark that she gives him. Uh, and that being what, uh, what brings him back. I just love that part. And I love how they draw out uh, uh, Eve holding his hand and her going away, yet he's not letting go. Uh, that, that's just a that's a great moment for me. That's mine. Yeah, I have either of you seen Soul yet? Yes. Oh, the half fact of it that this you. is a Pete Doctor movie and uh, there's the spark at the end to recreate life and personality in Wall-E, and Soul is about finding your spark of personality. Yeah. yeah. There's a little bit of a, a wrap around or a circular um, point of view, but just thought I I'd wrap that in. That's a Dan, great What was up. your What was your favorite? Oh, the same. Uh, just the ending with, and it's partly uh, being sentimental. Uh, you know, again, finding love and love overcoming adversity and situations and such. And I don't know. I just love the scene because it 
gave you the warm feeling you wanted when the film was over and carried with me more than anything else. Uh, all right. Most indelible moment. I'll go with the one you guys nominated for favorite scene. I think the ending is the most indelible. If And part of the reason, I usually try and wait to nominate my most indelible until much after watching the movie, or at least try to, if, if I can separate that out. And it's simply this. I look at most indelible as what's the first thing I think of immediately when I think back on the movie. And to me, the ending and how uh, he gets his personality back. And there's that. Uh, I It's hard for me to quantify it as love between robots. But since you both mentioned it that way, I, I'll, I'll characterize it as such. But that she saves him when he's kind of brought out certain characteristics out of her as well, that they complement each other. And ultimately that's been the whole point of the movie is, is his desire to not be alone in the universe anymore. Uh, Roger, what did you have as down as your most indelible? I had the same one, uh, uh, you know, at the end, uh, I had that one. Uh, I think we've, we've talked about it, the reasons why, I mean, it's, it, and I like what you were saying, what you're, how you, when you think about a movie, what is it that you're going to remember? Uh, the other, the other one that I keep going, and I'm, I'm going to just, there was a close runner-up, and that is, it's the whole humanity's let itself go message, you know. So it's not necessarily one moment, but I, it, I think it, I, actually, it might, I think it is the moment that you, that I remember seeing all the large people being carted around in, in the, uh, in their hover chairs, you know, with. Uh, you know, everything's, you know, you, you drink everything, you know, through a straw. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what a, what a statement on, on either how we are, how we are now or where we're going. So that has never left me. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised if they didn't lean or that they didn't lean into that a little bit harder where they have like the feeding tube, like just coming around from the chair yeah, itself. I, I hear you that, but I, and I think it would have scared the kids. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you get the same idea. It may as well be, you know, I, I love what you're saying there. It may as well be a doggone feeding tube, right? The computer tells you to do something, you know, and there's a small bit of that when it says, hey, blue is the new red, right? And you tap a button and all of a sudden everybody's wearing blue, right? You know, if only it were mm -hmm. that simple, you know, and now you, again, fast forward to today's social media and influencers, right? How often do, you know, we listen to the word of someone else and, oh, bam, well, I got to have that. Uh, and there it's just an instant world. I don't know if anybody else thought about this and this was not my era. So maybe you guys might relate to, to this a little bit more, but all food coming in pill form from Rosie, the robot, every time they're like, Oh, everything comes in a cup. That was immediately my thought is, Oh, they're just repackaging the Jetsons. Yeah. I think it was an, I think it was a tilt of the hat to that. Dad, what did you have down as your most indelible? Same scene, same thing. The the thing that struck me about it is, and and again, just a commentary on on life in general. But you have to have a certain level of intelligence to uh, experience love. But then uh, once you experience love, intelligence is out of the picture. True. <laughs> oh, so glad that mom doesn't listen to most of these episodes. <laughs> Uh, all right, so that's a good place to uh, check in with one of our sponsors. We'll be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. 
If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. All right, welcome back to our audience. Uh, we're going to jump into best lines. Uh, I found this one a little bit difficult. I don't know if either of you did, but uh, there weren't a ton of them that stood out to me. This is more of a an action or a feeling, a musical film, than it is anything from uh, lines necessarily. There's just it, emotion is evoked on a different level than vocally. So I have a couple here, but uh, let's start with you, Dad. What did you have down for best lines? I really had a trouble even coming up with any that I thought were like overly memorable. So I'm going to take a pass. I've never done this before, but there was so much of it that was visual. To me, this film was more art than theater. Okay, I, I, I can I can bear with that. I have a couple just to kind of fill out the category, but Roger, did you have a couple of nominees? I really only had one, and I'm going to go back to something Dana brought up uh, earlier for a different reason. But uh, the funniest bit to me was the Mo character, the the bot that kept cleaning up after uh, mm, yeah. uh, Wally. Uh, that they kept making a, a callback to that was just funny to me. As soon as they introduced that character, uh, that that robot, that was just I laughed every time, <laughs> every time, and and every time that that uh, voice came up, uh, you know, foreign contaminant, I just laughed, and uh, that was it for me. All right, so I had two to kind of round this out, and I've already mentioned the one for funniest line, and it just kind of struck me. But and uh, I, we've talked about it already, but I didn't know we had a pool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just because it's the the awestruck nature of all of that. Uh, some of that uh, will wrap around here when uh, we get to remaining questions. The other one that I had and I thought it was the line that stood out the most to me because, Dad, you and I have been through this. I don't know how many times we love the good summation lines. So, Otto, you will survive. Captain, I don't want to survive. I want to live. And that there's a, a gross difference mm-hmm. or a distinction between the two. And I, I think if anything can sum up exactly how the second half of this film goes, humanity and what it is to survive as a species, all of these baser instincts that we use through sci-fi anymore, uh, this one kind of hit it for me. I think you just said the tagline for COVID-19. I was just going to say that, Dana. Thank you. Yep, I'm with you 100%. I didn't realize how much I miss people (laughs) until now. I mean, they just kind of, a lot of people just annoy me. This stupid people that like park their carts in the middle of the aisle at the grocery store and then stand five feet back staring at which taco sauce to buy. And, you know, you're like, can I get through here, please? That's Um, the one you went with? 
the amount of times that I've been in a car with you and there are people walking literally down the middle of the aisle where in the parking lot and you're like, can you walk on one side or the other to allow cars to go through? It's like they're herded cattle, but don't realize that they, uh, there are other people around. I love it. You know, and I love what, uh, to, to go back to the line that you were talking about, Thomas, I, I agree with you. I mean, in 2008, survive and thrive had a different context than it means here we are, you know, whoever's, you know, for, for the listeners, we're now a year into the pandemic and survive and thrive have taken on very different meanings, right? We've all survived. And now what we're missing, some people are missing is the ability to thrive. Now I'm not saying that people haven't thrived during this time, but uh, what a great, what a great observation, Dana. But there, there's just something that, all of our ability to interact anything else has been defined by other people. But right now it's only through like the internet or what's on Netflix. And yeah, it's just we no way to live. Fun. There are much more enjoyable things to talk. About. <laughs> uh, you guys ready for the Stanley rubric? Yes, I'm in. All right. So legacy, I had down an eight basic argument. This was right before, this was the last year before the Best Picture expansion. So uh, this was back when we still had five Best Picture nominees only. The following year, we had Up nominated for Best Picture, and then the following year, we had Toy Story 3. I think this movie, along with The Dark Knight and Gran Torino, would have expanded the field and probably been included in the Best Picture list that year and are complete drivers of why that particular category changed for the Academy Awards. This was also in just about every top 10 film list that year. Again, an expansion of what is or is not a quality film. I think that when Toy Story was released and maybe subsequent movies, um, even to a certain extent like Monsters, Inc. is uh, treated a little bit differently and uh, The Incredibles, all of those were seen as nice kids' movies, but I don't think they impacted or that let's say the critics field looked at them as their own capability that it wasn't just a kid's movie, but it could be something that actually had some quality and something behind it. And I think this has really set up this next era of Pixar movies uh, where we have inside out, where we have up, we have Coco soul, etc., where they're really expanding on the themes and kind of the artistry of how they put together their movies. It's not just about doing the animation, but it's the whole package coming together in one thing. So I think this has really expanded that particular field. And this is a good one where I think this might be kind of the pivot film for Pixar and animation generally, as far as critics treat it and the rest of us generally. So I went with an eight. I only knock it for, uh, I don't think this is one that, if you're asked to name a Pixar film, is going to come up in most people's top three, let alone not a top five. I think that if people have seen it, it goes into that bag. But there are a lot of people, oddly enough, that haven't seen this, including myself up until now, whereas Toy Story is automatically named Cars, The Incredibles, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo. Inside Out, Up, you go on a huge list before you come to this movie for a lot of people. So uh, I, I knock it just slightly for that, but I'll go with an eight. So, Roger, what did you have down? I gave it an eight, too, uh, as well. Uh, 
I think it's got great messages. Uh, it's got, you know, a watch out humanity message. It's got the environment message The you know, you know, watch, watch out for the earth uh, message. I, you know, I, I think it's been there, you know, it, it is one of my, I think, I, I think it's in my top three, you know, favorite, you know, Pixar movies, but, you know, in talking about it, you know, the reason I picked this one, cause I thought it would just because of the messages, you know, I enjoy Incredibles. I mean, that's that's there just because I'm a superhero freak and I love I love that one. But uh, yeah, eight because uh, of a lot of the things that it, a lot of a lot of the messages. Dad, what did you have down? Uh, the same philosophy that you guys had for the most part, and I went with a seven point five simply because <laughs> of the lack of real traction. I mean, when you mentioned it, I had to stop and pause and go. Was this a Pixar film? Okay, so it, it but now I'm watching it, and this is going to reflect in other scores later on, you know, the quality of the film itself. So that leaves us with a 7.83 as the average between the three of us. Uh, impact significance, Dad, what did you have down? Um, this I went with an 8.5, because I think the very point you made, I think this kind of transferred. I mean, I looked at Pixar as being kind of a computer animation, kids' films. Toy Story was a great piece of work, blah, blah, blah. And now watching this, I think this has more poignancy and relevancy now than it did even in 2008. I think this could probably be the defining moment for Pixar of going from being just the kid-friendly atmosphere to something more substantial, where adults should actually watch what they're doing. Okay, Roger, what did you have down? Uh, I had an eight, and I'm, I'm, I'm picking up from some of the, even the legacy points that I think there was, there was, there was a lot of significance in this movie from a message standpoint. And also from, I think, I forget who brought it up, uh, but we discussed uh, the fact that the, the art of the film again for the time, mm-hmm. you know, I agree with you. Uh, Thomas, that, you know, since then, you know, we've obviously made leaps and bounds uh, in terms of what we can do with animation and the digital technology. But uh, uh, eight for me. Again, I think the impact of this one is that it proves that animation is not limited to a certain category or genre, that it can be expansive in the critic mind. And maybe I'm a bit harsher than the two of you, I, again, see this one in the shadow of some other films that have come out since then. I, I think most people, if you ask them what's the best Pixar movie, again, I think they're going to say probably Inside Out. Some might say Soul, Coco, Up, Toy Story 3, personally, might be up there for me because I, I grew up with the first two and they just heard, hold a special place. And the ending to 3, I mean, gosh, I don't know if I've cried harder than at the end of Toy Story 3 and... Honestly, you ask almost anybody from my generation that grew up on the first two, it's not surprising. I'm not alone in just, like, absolutely sobbing at the end of Toy Story 3. But I gave it a 7. Uh, I Again, it pushed Pixar into larger and more complex themes than kind of the base surface. You know, there are some underneath. When you, you talk about Finding Nemo, there are, there are some bigger expansive themes, but not quite on this level where they're much more philosophical. 
uh, to the level that, you know, we deal with emotions and in inside out, or we deal with personality and um, the concept of uh, a soul in soul itself, or um, what is the afterlife in Coco. I mean, you, you start going through some of the other films that have come out after this. Again, I think this was a pivot point movie. It's just that if you look in the context of the movies that came just out after it, I think those live in the consciousness a little bit more and have a, a little bit more of an impact on the general public at large. So I went with a 7. So that's going to leave us with a 7.83 again as the average between the three of us for impact significance. Novelty, I went with a 9. Pixar has a an ingenuity that's almost unmatched in their ability to conceive and conceptualize just these very distinct worlds. And they always seemingly blend original complex ideas with these themes, especially in this modern era after Wally and such, into very easy to understand stories. Again, I think there's a sweetness and a sentimentality to Pixar movies. Like they really do understand the essence of what it is to be human and blend that through sometimes not human humanoid characters but they they've gotten a lot more into the the human aspect as opposed to telling it through toys or fish or other things you you look there's a very human essence movie to uh up to soul to coco to inside out that is not present in some of those early films not that they're not enjoyable but it's just it's on a different level of storytelling also i i look at some of these movies as far as their ability to relate some of these high concept themes the only other thing that i can think of in my memory um to some of these is is comparing them directly to children's books there are some very complex ideas i i look at them very fondly uh i think that some of the best literature uh, that i can think of and that i often compare things to is dr seuss i still have a very fond association of certain very complex ideas how many other great environmentalist books have a delivery system like this uh, other than something like the Lorax? Like <laughs> you think they're kind of on the same level in dressing mm. environmentalism, conservation, the irresponsibility of excess, but doing it in a way that's subtle without necessarily making uh, light of like you could very easily make a point of there's a certain level of body shaming in this I guess, world or this movie. And it might be the one knock that I have going into the next category, but it's still dealing with superstores and uh, the by and large. And, you know, we, we look at uh, Sam's Club and all of these other box stores, that uh, aspect of environmentalism and conservation and the capacity for our culture to consume excessively. Even now in quarantine our ability to consume content i think there was a, a lot to do about a recent article by martin scorsese basically saying yeah we have a lot of content and we've labeled a lot of things as content but how much of it is actual quality and i think that's that's another knock against something like netflix that's all about producing stuff but how much of it actually has any quality value to it that's where you get a little bit difference beyond that so for novelty i went with a nine Dad, what do you have down? I went with an eight on this, and the reason I marked it down just a bit was is because there's certain elements. It's I I started thinking, all right, we're in this situation where it's one person or one man or one 
being whatever and finding love and being transported into a different environment or using it to survive. I mean, you could even make parallels to this to Montgomery Cliff and Donna Reed in from here to eternity because it's the same thing. He's lost in the military. He finds love. He ultimately changes how he looks at world. The world ultimately it ends up in his demise, which ends up almost happening to Wally because of it. So I started thinking about that, and and I and was trying to make those comparisons because you know it, there are times when I'm sitting alone at the dining room table with a cup of coffee and I'm pondering this stuff, that I let my mind wander and see where it goes. So anyway, so that's where I came from. I'll tell you, Roger, apparently we need to do a animated film like every month because that's the fourth time Dana's absolutely surprised me with something. Like, I didn't see your equivocation, but that that's a very astute point on, you know, From Here to Eternity. So a movie we have not yet covered, but I'm sure it will come up at some point at the 1953 Best Picture winner. But, Roger, it, let's give you the last word on novelty. What did you have down? Yeah, I'm nothing if not the model of consistency uh i gave it an eight and and i and i took to heart where you know your your uh criteria for uh novelty uh, i think it did create some conversations in pushing a, a bit of uncomfortable questions upon people you know in terms of you know are we really this kind of consumerism society uh could we see could the world eventually go down this path if we went to the extreme could you see piles and piles and piles of trash are we doing enough to save the environment what what is it we're doing to our world so on that point yeah it, i love it because i'm a big sci-fi geek and i love this idea of two robots one of a, you know, one of, you know, old, old school meets new school and all the different kind of comparisons that come out of that. And, uh, like you, I'd love to watch more. Um, I'd love to watch more Pixar movies with, uh, Dana, because I'd love to know what the heck you see in them because you're opening my eyes to them too. So eight for me. I was going to make a point off of that and I'll carry it into classicness. I don't think there's almost anything that has aged nearly as well in the 12 years 13 years since this movie came out, then looking at it through the lens of what climate change could be for the country, for the world, our uh, response to it, our excessiveness, the fact that the entire world that Wally lives in is filled with stuff and dirt, and that's it. And the, the consumerism nature of all that goes around it, that it's only just metal and things that we produced, and then we left it all behind. Then you talk about everybody talking in context of interplanetary species. You know, how are we going to continue on the human race where we have to find somewhere alternatively outside of the Earth to live because we have reproduced beyond a level that uh, is sustainable? You know, you think about some of these other discussions and concepts. This was in well in advance of its time, but has aged extremely well when you look at it through even the 12 years. I can't imagine what it's going to be if we give it another 10 for how well this has or this ages and is somewhat prophetic. So ultimately, I gave it a 9.5. It, most of it is still currently relevant. The discussion of space cruises has come up. This is not a... Um, unusual thing i think uh avenue five on hbo 
is uh, another example of that with a, a favorite of Dana and mine, uh, Hugh Laurie. Uh, again, multi-planetary species, humanity and access, AI. AI is a huge conversation that we're, we're t- currently talking through. Living life through a screen. The Earth is, we know it, ending due to toxicity levels. And I went down a rabbit hole today while I was watching it in the background because of the homages to 2001 A Space Odyssey and Kubrick. And, you know, I honestly, we do need if there are homages, we do need to discuss it in the Stanley rubric. But his conceptualization of 2001 is humanity started with intelligence and it only carries on through intelligence. So, you know, how does the human or how does humanity survive by inserting its consciousness and letting it exist beyond its capacity to survive. And now we talk about blending ourselves with androids or becoming bionic or all of the other conversations. There are just so many different things that you could discuss on a multi-level capacity with this movie. And I, I think it's just clearly there. The only reason I gave it a half point down was I think some people might have a bit of a sensitivity and Thankfully, they don't make it so overt. They make it rather subtle, but could have a level of sensitivity to the obesity angle. I only know that because if you've been listening long enough, you know that I am not a uh, particularly um, thin man. The word so. is svelte. That's right. Yeah, I hear sure. you. I'm not, I'm not svelte either, guys. I hear you. I, I'm, yeah. I'm curvy, as some might put it. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, Roger, what did you have down? I gave it a, the classicness. I gave it a nine. I, I think it's aged well, like you. Uh, when I pick this up, yeah, I, I, I think it does hold its own. It could be put out today, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, it, it would probably have a, a you know a bit more advanced uh, computer uh, animation type things, or we might see some smoother things. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think I think the uh, the messages hold up. I think the comedy holds up. I think it holds up as a children's movie. I, I think it holds up as an adult movie. Uh, like I said, I was surprised at how many times it still made me laugh. Uh, and again, I was amazed at how poignant the messages were and that they still resonated. So, yeah, nine for me. Dad, what did you think? I had a 9.5. And again, you, the same point you made downgrading a bit with the obesity aspect because I'm sitting there looking at this and going, Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay. Anyway, um <laughs> and your comments on uh, intelligence and all that struck me as very on point, especially considering our conversation this week that and I'll let the fans know uh our April Fools show <laughs> will be idiocracy. Oh, that's a great one, guys. And uh it's the uh anti uh, Wally film probably uh, because it just shows the absolute uh, level of uh, how things can uh, degenerate into levels of incredible stupidity. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I, I was going to comment, but I think we should save it for that episode. There's going to be yeah. so many things to comment on. All right. Uh, rewatchability. Roger, you were the one that suggested this one. What is it for rewatchability for you? I give it a 10. Uh, I think it's easy to rewatch. I think you can pop this one in over and over again. Oh, I'm sorry. We don't do that anymore. We stream them. Excuse me. Um, yeah, I, I could watch this again and again. 
Uh, I think it's easy. Like I said, what, I'm going to come full circle when, when I talked about, you know, like my, my kids were 13 and 10, you know, at the time and we've watched it on and off. It, this, this is the longest stretch, you know, it's been since I've seen it. It was easy to rewatch, you know, it was, uh, I don't want to overuse this word, but you know, it still was fresh to me. And I've, I've said it before, the comedy was fresh. The messaging was fresh. Uh, I love watching this uh, again and again. And I don't know if you guys do this, but like pausing at different places to look for Easter eggs or the messaging that's in there. Uh, there's all that kind of stuff that's funny. And one thing that I was going to put in there, even from from classicness and, re- and I think it applies in rewatchability. I laugh every time that Wally charges up and you hear the Apple chime sound. Yep. I'm a I'm a I'm a Mac uh, environment kind of guy, uh, 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 ecosystem kind of guy. My laptop still makes that noise every time it it pops up, and I just remember laughing again because every time we would hear that that noise, at least in my house, um, it reminded me of the commercial, you know that. Or, or we made this up that you know you'd hear the you, it was I think it was when the commercial came on you'd hear the Apple sound, and then you'd hear Wally. And so every time, like I would restart my iMac or our Mac, you know, my son and I would just look at each other and on cue say Wally just like that. So I don't know. Uh, that I, I think I, I give it a ten rewatchability. Easy, easy on the easy on the senses to rewatch. You know, and that takes me back a little bit. Uh, I had wanted to mention Ben Burt since we both nominated Wally as the most charismatic. I I don't want to overlook Ben Burt's sheer effort in putting together what Wally sounded like in this movie, uh, recording over 900 hours of sounds to be able to put this together and figure out the distinctiveness of that. So I, I don't want to overlook him by by uh, not at least mentioning who he was, even though we didn't technically nominate him. Still gave him somewhat of the personality that was there to make him the most charismatic. But, Dad, what was it for you on rewatchability? I had a seven. And it's simply because ever, or when I watched it the first time and then I rewatched most of it the second time, there's just a certain level of uncomfortableness about it being too mm. real mm. <laughs> that makes me feel very, um, at times, pessimistic about humanity because I'm like, wow, I, I just don't see that we're going to be able to change the path we're on of being over-consuming and the path that we have of being just slovenly. And so I, 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 that, to me, was a problem. And I'm just going to be upfront about it. I guess I see, and I've had this comment, being a lawyer, I used to be that I saw all crime because I did criminal defense. Then now, you know, because you, you know, if you're, if you play a game we used to play with the kids years ago called yellow car, you find a yellow car that you scored points. And it was until you started looking for them, you realized how many yellow cars there are. And for me, because I'm in a environment where people are kind of disabled or they're having bad moments or their lives are in shambles. It just becomes too realistic to me at times. And so to that extent, this is my visceral reaction when I went with a seven. Certainly understandable, although I would mention that yellow car for us was like punch bug. It was not points so much as being able to exact violence on your siblings. Well, I was trying to clean it up. 
<laughs> we did Punch Buggy too. <laughs> so I originally, when I did this in preparation last week, I put it as a 6.5. But in rewatching it today, I went and gave it a full another point because I think for me, the first time watching it, it was very slow to start with. And it had a difficulty holding my attention as it was still world building. I give it another point simply because I can appreciate the artistry and how everything is put together a lot more the second time through, where I'm not focusing so much on all of the plot. Because I I do think when you can kind of skip forward a little bit and knowing exactly what's going to happen or what's ahead, and you're not waiting for that particular moment, you can uh, see things like them uh, previewing the Axiom very early on in the film with that uh, preview video by by and large, or you know the the callbacks that come from early on in the movie to later on in the movie with the hand holding or you know any of those small little things. I just get a better appreciation. So I'm gonna go with a 7.5, and that is uh, gonna make for a 8.17 overall for us. So just to recap, 7.83 for Legacy. for impact significance. I don't think I gave scores for novelty or classicness, so here they are. 8.33 for novelty, 9.33 for classicness, 8.17 for rewatchability. And in a new twist on our audience score, just because I don't think we're expansive enough when we just use the Rotten Tomatoes audience score, I'm going to also use Google users now and average the two. So we're going to get a 9.2 overall for users because uh, Rotten Tomatoes had it at 90%. Google users had it at 94 So that makes for an even 9.2. Overall, that gives us a score of 50.69. I would say pretty respectable out of uh, 60 possible points. Not bad. All right. And I'm just going to call out your harshness on rewatchability, guys. I just have to mention it. And I respect it. I'm, give, I'm kidding here. <laughs> I, I respect your opinions. I do. They're valid points. Uh, and I gave it what I gave it because well, it is one of my favorites. But the, I, I, sitting in your shoes and looking or trying to and, and seeing it from your perspective, I get it. I do. It's. It, the, the messages you were talking about are not easy messages to swallow. So just yeah. hats off to you just saying, yeah, I'm with you. I think this is the most subjective category we have. It's the one that is, is simply on what are my tastes and what am I able to consume easily without having to feel forced. Yeah. And we've had to put so many gradations on what rewatchability is for us personally, that this is the one that varies the most often. But when this is episode, I think, uh, 54 now, yeah, 54, that uh, you just have to come up with a different conceptualization. Dana looks at it as the soul food category. What are the ones that I can easily go back to? The mac and cheese, um, you know, what are my favorite foods type of thing? when I'm having a crappy day or, you know, anything like that. Like yesterday, pizza. Yeah, pizza is a good one. And so, like, I have my certain category or list, the ones that I easily think of that um, we're going to put as the tens. But it's just a matter of we've been doing this. So trying to grade it on on a curve a little bit also comes into it. But that's why adding in a guest like yourself who has a different appreciation and has – favorites that they're easily going to go back to gives us a different wavelength and why we appreciate being able to do this with you. Thanks. 
So, remaining questions. All right. Uh, my first one. If Earth's atmosphere was toxic, how did it all of a sudden fix itself? I would think after my immediate reaction was after 700 years. <laughs> was it 700 or more? No, it was more than that. Well, it was so there was a five year cruise, and I think they basically alluded to it was the 700th anniversary of their five year cruise. There you go. So 3,500. So yeah. 3,500 years. I would think after that, I mean, it, the story stretches, but after all that time, I mean, we get little glimpses, right? You see that the, the clouds clear a little bit, you know, for the stars, you see the sun. And even later, after they land, that's when we're, I don't know if you caught it, but in the, you know, at, at the end, you know, you even see more plants uh, after they've landed. They don't have to wait and just plant the one from the boot. Or the reboot, as now Dana has <laughs> made me aware. So after all that time, yeah, I, I, it's plausible, right? I, I, it finally cleared up. There was enough that you know, people there, there weren't enough people. There, people weren't around spewing toxic, toxic fumes and whatever into the uh, atmosphere. That uh, it was plausible enough for me to think that the Earth could heal itself. I haven't seen where the earth just naturally kind of ebbs and flows in that, that direction. And we can just kind of let it work itself out. I mean, I guess if you want to say from a carbon level or anything else that we're just not adding to it anymore, maybe, but it, it just seems to give me the question of how that somehow just comes about when you've, you have no other vegetation, how it just sudden, what is it? Spontaneously starts again. But if you, I guess, buy into the evolutionary theory, that that is, I guess, entirely possible. I, I just look at it this very, or very simply, which is Earth has been around a lot longer than humans, and uh, it was able to care for itself. And then once you take humans out of the equation, it makes sense that Earth would figure a way to heal itself without humans continually adding to the mess. All right. Dad, what was your, uh, or do you have a remaining question? Where did all this stuff come from? I mean, we're already talking about the fact <laughs> we're running out of, you know, like iron, we're running out of gold, we're running out of all this stuff. I mean, where do you come up with this? Are we like mining the moon now and bringing it back? I mean, is that going to be the next robber baron thing? Is Elon Musk is going to be harvesting iron and and uh, minerals from the moon and bringing them back to Earth. And it's then we're going to have him. to worry about uh, we put too much weight on the Earth, so we're going to, like, spin out of control or end up shifting out of our uh, out of our rotation for, you know, I that was my thought. It's like, where did all this stuff come from? We have two supervillains in Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos that are going to compete over who can colonize the moon first. <laughs> Well, yes, and I, I made that joke last night because at 10 o'clock I get a little email message from my bank saying that my credit card was charged $119, and I'm like, what in the heck is going on here? So I called, your Amazon and they Prime, said it, it was my Amazon mm, charge for the year, sure. and I'm like, after this year? I mean, I think Jeff Bezos could have given everybody a year's reprieve. Um, well, what is the quote? Just a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's from uh, John D. Rockefeller. How much what, is enough? How much is enough? What what uh, what uh, what a great what a great question for the opening of that of the of the movie, right? You know, 
when you see how tall the uh, stacks of the buildings are and right and it's time for Wally to go home and he starts going down essentially from what is a super si- uh, skyscraper uh, worth of packed crap uh, or garbage <laughs> you know that yeah. you know he's packed this much up mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, yeah you're right where did all this stuff come from love your twist on the uh, I lo- uh, as a sci-fi person too and, and interested in science I love what you're saying what would happen if we were to suddenly bring onto the earth more matter than the earth could handle, right? Would, you know, how would, how would that affect uh, our, um, our, our uh, uh, journey around the sun or the gravitational pull of the, uh, of the planet itself? Uh, yeah. Interesting thing. I started watching the, uh, the expanse on uh, Amazon and it talks about, you know, colonizing all the way out to uh, Mars and, um, what, or Jupiter, and they talk about you know mining all of the ore in the in the belt, the the belt, uh, the asteroid belt between Jupiter oh, sure. and, and Mars, you know, and it you know they're mining uh, ore, they're mining water, they're mining all this kind of stuff. So yeah, I don't know where it's going to end. <laughs> well, if they're mining the asteroid belt, I have a feeling we're going to get some xenomorphs here pretty soon. There you go. There you go. Tied into episode thirty-eight, if you are so inclined. All right. Uh, so mine. Oh, excuse me. I skipped over. I'm sorry, Roger. Did you have a remaining question? The only one I had this time, <laughs> kind of like where you were, you were coming from, Dana. Like, where did all this stuff come from? After 3,500 years, what the hell is a regenerative buffet? Um, <laughs> you know, they mentioned that. I don't know if you caught pick that. I'm like, regenerative. How the hell are they producing all this food? And then I didn't want to know. So uh, maybe they had more probes going out to look for, you know, foodstuffs and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, just one of those kind of left hanging for me. Not a big question, but I'm fine if they don't answer it. They're not a sponsor, so I'll say it. Have you ever been to an old country buffet? (laughs) (laughs) I have. Yes, I have, sir. Okay. uh, All right. I can see it. Yeah, okay. That's a good one, though. Uh, my next one. How did the ship's residents procreate if they never touched each other? All right, deep dark thing here. In the middle of the night, some robot comes in, grabs the eggs and the sperm, and there you go. See, again, you can't show kids this stuff. Apparently there's an extra arm in your uh, hover chair. Let's go with that. And after a while, sure. if you don't know any better, it just, just happens. Wow, that's a good one. I mean, obviously, it's a kid's movie. They're not going to put that. But, yeah, that that one was just to me that uh, all of a sudden we're going to have this uh, moment where we have the daycare we're showing it so that we can flash to at the end where all the babies are produced. We also have that moment where we show, like, eight or nine generations of ship captains that, yeah. you know, obviously continue to get more fat yeah. uh, as uh, things go along. But, like, um, <laughs> if they never even knew the only interaction is with the screen, yeah. The old-fashioned procreation and is And if touching is was, a, was a new concept to them, right? Yeah. Oh, Honest yeah. Huxley and Brave New World. Yeah. Well, yeah. and that's my thought is you could either go Brave New World or The Matrix. Yep. Well, I can't comment since I've Jeez. never seen The Matrix. Oh, yes. Our second callback to The Matrix eventually seen the coming Matrix? up on this program. No. <sighs> All right. He's not a big sci-fi fantasy guy most of the oh, time. I understand. Yeah, I'm a historian. I understand. Love the Matrix. I'll watch it. I oh yeah, to. you're going to watch it I eventually. Know. 
and then and then I'll listen to what your uh, then I'll listen to how you guys think about what you guys thought about it. Okay, Dad, did you have another remaining question? No. No for Roger. Okay, I got two more. Okay. Uh, how would Wally hang on to a rocket through Earth Earth's atmosphere and then hold on for several years for the uh, ship to reach a cruise ship? Okay. So yeah. first off, the the pressure in order to leave Earth's atmosphere, you have to have it at such a degree, and the joints on his hand or whatever else to be able to hold on to that rocket and like lock it in place is an incredible feat by itself. But then to hold on through that sustained journey, because on the way back they talk about hyperspace or that hyperdrive that the ship yeah. goes through in order to get back to Earth. But on the way there, natural science would tell you that a rocket is going to take quite a long time. I mean, we're talking, what, uh, probably the good course of a year, year and a half just to go to Mars. This ship is probably out on the other side of, like, Jupiter, Saturn. So how long would it take, and how Hmm. long is he able to hold on? Good question. And at this point, I would turn to you if we were watching it together and say, okay, enough, Thomas. I'm watching the rest of the movie myself. Good question. I'm kidding with you, buddy. That's a, that's no, a, I, I feel like Neil deGrasse Tyson right now. Yeah, that, that, that's a... Don't that's humor a, yourself that much. Oh, I'm just thinking <laughs> of all the times that he's ruined movies for me. You're right, it's yeah. a gap. Oh, I, I don't think it really matters to the overall of the movie. It's just something no. that I was thinking about yep. during the course of things. So oh, That's a good, and then, good one. And then usually I can rely on, but lately has not been the case. Dad, you always go with the uh, what happened afterward. Were the ship's residents able to recreate life on Earth? I think they kind of lead you to believe that that's going to be how it ends, but you don't know for certain. Except that it's going to be different because I think ultimately what you're going to have is is a combination of AI life and human life because you already have Eve and uh, Wally in love and living on earth and i think you're going to have a certain element of population between machines well also these humans are not bred to exist uh in recreating from the start in a survivalist manner um being that heavy yes they're not going to have to chase down a wildebeest anytime soon for food but you know how can they sustain uh they're going to have to grow farms very very quickly Well, you know, there were, at least in whether you have uh, a certain level of belief or just the story, there have been times when humans have been forced to have to rely on something else. And what has ended up spinning off from that uh, something else has been their desire to have a forbidden fruit. And you guys thought I went into the uh, Wall-E after dark with the procreation question. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Thank you to our special guest this week, Roger, and uh, we hope to have you back soon for probably another animated film, but we also have one more on your list uh, to complete at some point in the near future. You are always welcome back. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed talking about this with you guys. You guys made it fun. Thank you. All right. We'll see uh, everybody next week. Dad, we will be doing The Grand Budapest Hotel by Wes Anderson, starring Saoirse Ronan, Ralph, or Ray Fiennes, 
I always get that one wrong. Uh, Tilda Swinton, Adrian Brody, and many more. So you won't want to miss that one. Please like, subscribe, review, or whatever on whatever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at gmopodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM.